I always love it when in the plan of the Holy Spirit things come together. We're going to talk about grace tonight. I didn't know they were going to sing that. They didn't know I was going to talk about grace. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the things that are written in your word. Even though these are difficult passages and uh, somewhat hard to understand, we know that God the Holy Spirit guides and directs and teaches us. And the more we study your word, the more your word becomes real to us. And as your word becomes real to us, the Holy Spirit uses it to transform our lives. Father, we pray that you would challenge us this evening as we look at these passages, as we continue to reflect upon your grace and upon our future destiny. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. I would have you open your Bibles to Revelation 2, verse 11, but we won't be there long enough for you to go there. So just hold on and we'll hit a couple of places along the way. But if you're a little antsy to start looking, you can go to 1 Corinthians 6. Grace. Choir just sang about grace, the wonderful grace of Jesus, one of my favorite hymns. It's always good, and it has a nice little catchy beat. You know, when you're singing about grace, you ought to be upbeat. But grace is one of those concepts that is so poorly understood. You often have people who think that grace is something that we earn. Grace is something that we deserve. Grace is something that is sort of doled out one increment at a time according to how often we participate in certain rituals or in certain rites of the church. Uh, Some people think that grace is fine, but, you know, if you commit certain sins or perform certain acts or think certain thoughts or if you continue that over a certain amount of time, they never can tell you how much time is enough, But if you do it over enough time, then maybe you weren't really saved. And that would introduce works in the back door that you might have been saved by grace or thought you were saved by grace at the beginning. You thought you believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You thought you were accepting a free gift. And then, wouldn't you know it, a couple of years later, life's gotten tough. You've fallen back into some old bad habits and you weren't really saved, because if you were really saved, you wouldn't do those things anymore. And so grace is constantly being perverted by the introduction of work. See, that's the, that's the trend of the sin nature. We constantly want to try to impress God with something that we've done, constantly want to make our salvation dependent in some way, shape, or form upon something we do, even if we bring it in the back door and say, try to say something like, well, you really are saved by grace, but if you did that or if you continue to do that, then maybe you weren't really saved. In other words, grace has some limit to it. It's not big enough, broad enough, encompassing enough to have taken care of all your sins, no matter how many thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of times You commit those sins. And we run into this in relation to the topic that we began to study some two or three weeks ago now. We had the rain out last Sunday, and the Sunday before that we were finishing up the prophecy conference. So we hit this tough passage in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, which brings us to the topic of inheriting the kingdom. Now I'll put the verses on the board for you to remind you of what we covered the last time. Revelation 2.11, 
closes out the second letter to the second church in the beginning of Revelation to the church of Smyrna. And we have a command, He who has an ear, let him hear. That's the imperative. And hearing in the Scripture, remember, isn't just having your auditory nerves vibrated. It has to do with learning and applying the message of the Lord. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the believers to read the book of Revelation and read these seven letters to the churches and the believers down through the ages and the church age are to pay attention to each of these messages and to apply them in whatever the circumstances they're in. And then we saw this warning that seems a little out of place in an address to believers. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And we've studied the terminology of overcomer, and we've seen that this refers not to the believer per se, but it belongs to a special category of believers who are advancing incrementally to spiritual maturity and having victory in their own lives over sin and over temptation and over the external pressure of adversity in the soul, applying doctrine consistently and moving forward. So it's talking about the advancing believer, not just every believer. And then we have the warning, the, the advancing believer, the victorious believer, will not be hurt by the second death. And we think, well, isn't that true about every believer? The second death is the lake of fire, as we see in Revelation 20, verse 14. And since all believers are saved by the death of Christ on the cross, aren't we all free from any threat from the second death? What exactly does it mean? Because there's the implication in verse 14, or in verse 11, rather of Revelation 2, that the one who doesn't overcome shall in some way suffer jeopardy by the second death. We looked at that, and then from there we went to Revelation chapter 20, which mentions the second death again, and there we read a similar passage. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. And we saw that in order to understand this, we have to exegete that word translated part, and we understood that that means an inheritance or a share. See, so often in English we think of part as a role, as a as playing a part or a role or having a position in something, and yet the Greek word doesn't have that nuance. It designates a specific uh, portion of an inheritance. For example, the uh, prodigal son came to his father and said, I want to share the meros of my inheritance. So it's talking about inheritance, and it says, Blessed and holy is he who has an inheritance. In the first resurrection, that first resurrection has several stages. It began with Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits, and then there is the rapture of the church that it, uh, takes place at the end of the church age, and then there is the uh, resurrection of the tribulation martyrs during the tribulation and the resurrection of Old Testament saints. That comprises the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Once again, we have this warning that the second death has no power over believers who have this inheritance. But they, that is, those that have this inheritance, shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. So it connects this to our future destiny during the Millennial Kingdom. We then went to Revelation 21, verse 8, where we saw this same terminology one more time. In verse 8, there's a list of heinous sins, the cowardly, the unbelieving, 
could be translated the unfaithful, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars uh, shall have their part, that is, their inheritance, in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And we saw that what this is talking about is inheritance once again. When we put verse 8 into the context of verse 7, we read, He who overcomes, that's what we're talking about in verse 11 of chapter 2, is the overcomer. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Now, contextually, we're dealing with the inheritance of the kingdom. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, and the list goes on, their part, their inheritance, shall be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. So it is a warning that the believer who is an overcomer has an inheritance in the kingdom, but the one who doesn't loses it. It is destroyed in the lake of fire. And that is how, as we concluded last time, that's what happens to believers who have a life filled with human good, a life filled with works that have no value, a life filled with works that are classified as wood, hay, and straw at the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. What we have here is the destruction of those rewards that are not distributed to those believers. But this raises another question because you see verse 8 gives this list of sins and obviously it's talking about inheritance and even though it doesn't use the precise terminology shall not inherit the kingdom, you find other passages in the New Testament that do talk about not inheriting the kingdom. And this raises a lot of questions in the minds of a lot of folks because if grace is grace and Jesus Christ paid for all the sins, then, wait a minute, it looks at first glance in these verses that if you continue to sin these sins, then you won't be saved. You'll either lose salvation, which is how uh, one group of uh, people take this, and that classification is known as Arminianism. And you have various different shades of Arminianism, but basically it's the idea that you can lose your salvation. Or, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the extreme Calvinists, or what we would identify as perseverance Calvinists, who believe that if you don't persevere in good works, then you weren't really saved to begin with. The terminology that's been used today to identify people who teach that is lordship salvation. That if you're truly saved, then there is a change in your internal nature so that you just can't commit certain sins, or if you do, you won't do it for a lengthy period of time. You may f- stumble, but you won't fall. And what this, so when they come to these passages, they, they have to do a little two-step to get around grace. Because what grace really teaches is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin so that sin is no longer the issue when it comes to your eternal relationship with God. It may affect other things because, you see, if you're out of fellowship and you're committing these sins, you may also be committing human good. You're not being penalized for the sin. I hear that see that question in your 
minds already because sin was paid for. So they're not being penalized for these sins. What they're being penalized for is an abs- what these sins represent if, they're, if they continue in your post-salvation life is that they represent a failure to grow in sanctification. And so there are consequences. It means that you're living out of fellowship a majority of the time, and there is a cost to that, a cost factor. So let's look at these passages. Now, in the past several weeks, we've not only talked on Sunday night about the issues related to inheritance and the meros portion in Revelation chapter 2, but on Thursday nights in our study of Hebrews, we also looked at the concept of inheritance. And what we saw there is that with the Old Testament background of inheritance, inheritance in the Bible emphasizes possession of property, ownership of property. And that is the main idea that goes on, that to be an heir is to be one who owns, one who has a vested interest in something. If we look at the Old Testament analogy, there were people who lived in the land, but they weren't heirs. They weren't designated heirs. The, the classic example are the tribe of Levi. They were priests. They didn't have an inheritance, which is specifically stated. All the other tribes had a possession, but the Levites didn't. That's why they were to receive a tithe or 10% from the uh, other tribes is because they did not have a possession. So you could be in the land and not own the land. And that is important because what we're talking about tonight is that there are going to be a group of believers who will be in heaven, in the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, and on into the eternal state, who are in and present, but they are not possessors or owners. They do not have, will not have ruling and reigning privileges in the eternal kingdom because they have failed to grow and advance in the spiritual life in this age to develop the capacity required to uh, execute that level of responsibility in the millennial kingdom. The fact that there are two different levels of inheritance is indicated in Romans 8.17. Not the way it's normally punctuated in English translations, but then that punctuation is merely a theological interpretation added by the translators. We've gone over this before, so I'll make it brief. Romans 8.17 states, And if children, then heirs. And usually you have this set off in a parenthesis of some sort. Heirs of God... Comma, that's what you find in most versions, indicating one type of heirship. Or no, excuse me, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, comma. So it, it's it punctuated as if heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ are the same thing, as if they're synonymous. And then there's a condition, if indeed we suffer with him. But you see, that condition would apply to both heirship of God and joint heirs with Christ. But the Bible doesn't put any condition on salvation. It doesn't say you'll be saved if you continue. It doesn't say you'll be saved if you're faithful. It doesn't say you'll be saved if you don't commit these sins. It says if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be saved. That's it. There's no condition added. But there's a condition added here in Romans 8.17. If we suffer with Him. Now we have to understand what that means, and it's better to take that phrase, heirs of God 
and joint heirs with Christ and repunctuate it. And I always have fun illustrating this with a English sentence. Woman without her, man is nothing. We've gone over this. I just want to make sure it's locked in. Those of you who haven't been here on Thursday night have missed this. You can always take this little test and say, how do you punctuate that? Most of the time, women are going to punctuate it like this. Woman, without her, man is nothing. In other words, the idea being that men are nothing without women. But, see, you can punctuate it like this. Woman without her man is nothing. And in that punctuation, what you're saying is woman is nothing. So it's where you put those tricky little commas that determine the meaning of the sentence. So if we come back to our verse in Romans 8.17, and if we say, if children, then heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs of Christ, no comma, if indeed we suffer with him, what we're saying is there's two classifications of inheritance. The first is being an heir of God if you trust Christ as Savior. That's true for every believer without distinction. The second category of inheritance is a joint heir with Christ, and that's conditioned upon spiritual growth, which is what is meant by suffering with Him. This isn't the kind of suffering where you're self-flagellating or you're putting yourself out in the desert or going through some sort of ascetic practice or whatever it may be. It is simply a recognition that living in the cosmic system calls upon you to apply doctrine. Jesus learned obedience, the writer of Hebrews says, by the things that He Suffered, And in the same way, we go through tests and we learn obedience by applying doctrine. And so if we go through that process of spiritual advance, then that qualifies us to be a joint heir with Christ. The Old Testament had two levels of inheritance as well, which we saw in our study. If you were a father such as Jacob was and you had 12 sons, then they all received an inheritance. But the firstborn received a double portion. This was the issue between Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob were twins. Esau was the firstborn. He came out of the womb first, and Jacob came after him, grabbing onto his heel. And later, Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a mess of red lentil soup. Now, red lentil soup's pretty tasty, especially if it's cooked right. But I don't know that it's tasty enough to sell your second blessing, your double portion. And that's what he sold off. He still received some sort of inheritance, as every son would, but that double portion, that second portion that was his by right of primogenitor as the firstborn, that was given to Jacob, who tricked him into it. So that's the idea here, is that there's certain things that are for every believer, but then there are other things that are not. And those are reserved for the overcomer believer, for that victorious believer, the advancing believer, the one who is maturing in Christ and being prepared through sanctification to rule and reign with Him in eternity. Now we come to our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. This is one of those difficult texts to interpret, some say. Do you not know, the Apostle Paul writes, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Twice we have this statement that there are those that will not inherit the kingdom of God. The first question identifies them as unrighteous. The second question replaces the word unrighteous with a list of sins and practices. In both places, there is the clear statement that those who practice these things, those who continue in these sins, will not inherit the kingdom. What exactly does that mean? Does this mean that somehow there are exceptions to the gospel of grace? What exactly is being said here? So in order to get to this, we need to go through a very systematic study of the Word. First point, the concept of inheriting the kingdom is understood in two radically different ways. This is a major division among evangelicals today, and let me just warn you if you didn't know it, most evangelicals don't understand grace. They just want to slip works right in the back door. They're so concerned about Uh, giving away something in licentiousness that they are willing to sacrifice grace. One uh, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary uh, wrote a book about grace. I think he called it The Grace Awakening. And in that book, he made the statement that a pastor is not... And I thought this took tremendous courage in today's world to make a statement like this in print. He said a pastor isn't teaching grace if people in his congregation aren't taking advantage of it. Now think about that. He said a pastor really isn't teaching grace if he doesn't have people in his congregation abusing it, becoming licentious. Now why would he say something like that? Because when you're a young, immature believer, and somebody comes along and says, you know, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all your sins. They're all taken care of. You have not only complete forgiveness at the cross, but whenever you commit some sin after salvation, all you have to do is admit it to God, and you're instantly cleaned. You don't have to go through penance. You don't have to uh, say certain prayers. You don't have to beat yourself up. No self-flagellation, no uh, penance, no emotion, no... You don't have to do all that to be forgiven. It's all paid for at the cross. Well, great, I'm going to get off scot-free. Let's go have some fun. All I have to do is admit it afterwards, and I'm cleansed. Isn't that great? Of course, see, forgiveness just means you're restored to relationship with God. It doesn't mean the consequences are removed. And if you're growing or advancing, it's not long before you realize that, that grace and forgiveness doesn't mean the consequences are necessarily removed, although... Thankfully, in many cases, God, God comes through and He just doesn't let us reap all the consequences of the acts that we are sowing. Grace means that Christ paid for everything. Now, what we're afraid of is licentiousness. And then somebody's just going to come along and, dis, and, 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 and abuse the grace. But if you think about it, especially those of you who are parents, and almost I can say for a fact that everyone here was a teenager at one time, unless you're not there yet. But somewhere around the age of 11 or 12 or 13, as parents, you decide that you're going to leave sweet little Johnny or cute little Mary at home alone. 
And you're going to be gone for two or three hours. Maybe you're all going to go out to dinner, you're going to go to a movie, or whatever it is. You're going to leave them at home, and you're going to read them the riot act before you leave and to make sure that nothing goes wrong. And I would bet that if they have the same genes that you have, the reason you're reading them the riot act is because you know what you did the first time you were left alone by your parents or the second time. And you know what you tried to get away with. See, that's just the nature of immaturity is to take advantage of grace. And so if you're really teaching grace, you're going to have baby believers and immature believers out there latch on to that and say, wow, I can get away with it. All I have to do is confess my sins. But it's not long if they're growing and maturing that they begin to realize that that's not wrong. Because that, I mean, that's not right because God's going to come along with a little divine discipline and a two-by-four and whack them upside the head. Just like uh, you probably did something when your parents left home and you got caught and they whacked you upside the head. So grace always is going to have that, that openness to abuse. But that doesn't mean that you restrict grace or that you try to scare people into obeying the Lord. Well, that's the battle that's going on today is over grace, and this is at the center of that battle. And so we have one group that understands entering the kingdom as having a share in the privileges and possessions in the kingdom, or or, excuse me, uh, two radically different ways. One group will interpret the phrase inheriting the kingdom as entering the kingdom. In other words, if you commit these sins, you're not going to get in. Somehow you either forfeit the salvation you had or you weren't really saved. They'll come at it one of those two ways. The other group will come at it and say, which is the view that we hold, that no, it's not that you won't enter the kingdom, but you will not have a share or a portion or an inheritance in the privileges and possessions in the kingdom. So these are the two ways you that are offered for handling this passage. Now, to study this, we have to go through and do a little technical work on the phraseology. So the second point identifies the phrases, the places where the phrase inherit the kingdom is used. The phrase is used in six passages, Matthew 25, 34, our passage of interest, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Galatians 5.21 and Ephesians 5.5. We'll touch on all those before we're done. These are the passages where the phrase inherit the kingdom is used. We'll begin by taking this apart by looking at our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. So the question begins, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So we have to ask two questions. First of all, what does it mean? What does the term unrighteous mean? Who are the unrighteous? And the word in the Greek is adikoi. Now, those of you who have been around a while or have had a little Greek know that that alpha at the beginning of adikoi functions in Greek like the UN does in English. It's a prefix that that negates the word, and the word dikoi comes from the noun decay in the Greek, which indicates righteousness. So, in a strict literary or in a strict literal interpretation, adikoi could be understood to be unrighteous. But in numerous passages, it simply means wrongdoer. 
First uh, John 5 says that all adikoi is sin. It just has that idea of wrongdoing, of missing the mark. The second question we have to ask and answer is, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom? What does that mean? Does that mean to inherit, to enter heaven, or to have a possession in heaven? Of course, we've already answered that basically in previous studies. So let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at the context that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The context, of course, is Corinth. If you look at the map, I have indicated where the uh, city of Corinth was located in the ancient world, had a population of around 200 to 250,000, and it was located at the Isthmus of Corinth, where you have the uh, Saronic Gulf on the eastern side and the Gulf of Corinth on the western side and there was a canal that was dug across the isthmus. It's really not that far across, maybe uh, uh, two to three miles. And it was easier to either go through that, the canal was built later, it was easier to go through the canal in the early days to transport goods across the isthmus than to go all the way around the peninsula because of the winds and the currents which made it extremely dangerous. So Corinth was a seaport town and here's a picture looking out over the Sea of Corinth there from the Acre Corinth, the high point above the city. And so you can see the uh, beautiful blue water looking across to the uh, mainland of Greece in the the north and the area where uh, uh, the uh, Temple to Apollos was located at, at, at Delphi. Now to understand Corinth, we have to understand a little background. This is a seaport town. Now, those of you who've been around merchant marines or uh, down to the ship channel around Houston have some idea of what happens when a town is a seaport town. It usually brings in all kinds of uh, uh, the dregs of society, and you pick up a lot of uh, rather, uh, you know, sailors who are traveling around, so you have prostitution and other things that come along with that. But with the with all of the ships that are coming, you have people that come from different cultures, different backgrounds, so they're bringing all the various religions that you would find in the ancient world, so that Corinth became a regular melting pot. The history of the, uh, of the colony, or the city of Corinth, was that it had a, it was destroyed by the Romans in 149 BC, and the early Corinth was known for uh, sexual debauchery and licentiousness to the degree that the term Corinthian became a synonym for someone who was just a real pervert and licentious individual. But the same thing happened when they rebuilt the city. In 46 B.C., the Roman Romans established a colony there, and they sent a bunch of uh, veterans from the Roman army there, and then the seaport attracted a kaleidoscope of inhabitants from all over the ancient world, and with them they brought their mystery religions and the fertility religions and uh, prostitution. All these things thrived in the city of Corinth, and they, they didn't have a Christian value system from anywhere to tell them that these things were wrong, so everything was accepted, and it was just standard operating procedure. It is out of that melting pot that a number of individuals are saved when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth and gave them the gospel. The problem was that they had a hard time learning the word and applying it, 
And so even a few years later, they're still living like they did before they were saved. And in this epistle alone, this is very important for understanding the background here, in this epistle alone, the Corinthians are described as being divisive and fractious in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and following. They were dividing up according to personality, and they were saying, well, I follow Apollos, and I follow Peter, and some others would say, no, I follow Paul. And then the holier-than-thou crowd said, well, you all can follow those men, but I'm going to follow Jesus. You know, sure they said it in the right tone of voice. Then there were others in the group that were enthralled and enamored by Greek pagan philosophies. And so they were judging what Paul taught by what the pagan Greek philosophers had taught. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, they're described by Paul as being carnal. They were jealous of one another. There was strife in the body of Christ. Uh, they thought of themselves as being overimportant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, Fifth, they were described as being boasting in chapter 1, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 7. They were said to be arrogant in 3, 6, 4, 7, and 4, 18. They were described as being licentious and morally permissive in chapter 5 because they had a guy in the church, they didn't think anything of it, when he uh, married his stepmother. Now, that's not quite the social... Uh, uh, faux pas in our culture as it was in their day, but that was considered to be incest, just as bad as if he had had uh, sexual relations with a young child. Uh, they were, uh, in, in chapter 7, they're also described as being sexually immoral. They were gluttonous drunkards at the Lord's table in chapter 11. Uh, they were self-absorbed and pagan in their view of the spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. So when we look at that list, we don't see a group of mature believers here. These, this is about as messed up a congregation as we'd ever find in all of history. I mean, they've got every kind of sin bouncing off the walls. This isn't a bunch of goody tissues. You've got to get that through your head to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Most of them are still living like they were before they were saved. The, the vast majority of them are still living and thinking like they did before they were saved, okay? Now, let's go back to our key words here. We have to understand these two concepts, adikos and for unrighteous, or is it, does it mean unrighteous or does it mean unsaved? That's the question. What does it mean? Is this talking about positionally unrighteous? Get this down. Is this talking about being positionally unrighteous, or is it talking about being experientially unrighteous? If it's positionally unrighteous, then that means they're not saved. If it means experientially unrighteous, it means they're saved, but they're just living as if they're not saved. The second word, kleronomia, has the idea of being in, uh, of inheriting or possessing. We have to understand that concept. Okay. The word adikos, let's look at that first. What does this word mean, adikos? It's used in Romans chapter 3, verse 5, where we read, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust? There we have adikos again. 
who inflicts wrath. I speak as a man. See, Paul is using this word in this context to refer to God. Now, in this context, let's look at the verse and say, is this talking about a positional or experiential category? If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, is that talking about something that's experiential or positional? It's talking about something here that's experiential. If our acts of sin, if our wrongdoing, I think that would be the better translation here, if our wrongdoing demonstrates the righteousness of God, because the basic meaning of autokos means to do something that violates a standard. If our wrongdoing demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God doing wrong? I think we could translate it with that idea in both places. Is God doing wrong? Is he missing the standard who inflicts wrath? So in this verse, it could be experiential in both places, certainly not positional. That brings us to two other places. Now, if we look at the meaning of the word as it's outlined in the dictionaries, they give the meaning that that adikos means someone who violates the law, that which is against law, or someone who is doing wrong, someone who is uh, perhaps uh, doing wrong, violating the law, or in some cases... The concept is that which is unjust or unrighteous. So this is, the the lexicons clearly outline the two options. It could be positional or it could be experiential. So we have to look at the the context. Now the word autokos, as I mentioned, is only used three times, Romans 3, 5, and then in our passage, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1, and 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. The problem is how it's laid out in verse 1. In verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 6, we read, Does any of you, when he has a case against a neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So the contrast is between the unrighteous, that is the adikos, and the saints, that is the hagias. Well, hagias here is clearly talking about those who are positionally righteous. So adikos would refer to those who are positionally unrighteous or unbelievers. And what Paul is talking about in context is that in their licentiousness, every time one believer gets offended by another believer in the local church, he's dragging them off in some lawsuit. Sounds like modern America, doesn't it? Let's, let's all get something for nothing. So this is the background issue, and what Paul is saying is you think you're going to get real justice by going to some unbeliever who doesn't have a, a biblical frame of reference or a biblical scale of values, and you're going, to, you're going to have two believers go before some unbelieving judge for righteousness? Forget it. This is an unrighteous judge, and that's what, the, what his emphasis is. And so many people, when they come to our verse in Verse 9, look at this word unrighteous and say, see, back in verse 1, unrighteous refers to unbelievers, those who are positionally unrighteous. So we have to have that same interpretation in verse 9, and that would mean that Paul is asking, do you not know that the unbeliever will not inherit the kingdom of God? As one person put it, that's, isn't that stating the obvious? Sure, the unbelievers are not going to inherit the God. Why would Paul even bring that up? We all know unbelievers aren't going to enter heaven, if that's what he means. 
You see, he's got, he's changed the meaning of the word in the, as he developed the passage. See, if you look at verse 8, Paul used another variant of the word. He went from the noun adikas to the verb adikeo. And in verse 8 we read, no, you yourselves do wrong. Now the New American Standard, if you're using that, just says you yourselves wrong and cheat. But it's, it has the idea of performing something, doing something. So the New King James has it more correctly translated as you yourselves do wrong. You're wrongdoers. You're adikeo. You're wrongdoers. You yourselves are wrongdoers and cheat. You do these things to your brethren. Now look at this. Verse 8 uses the verb meaning being a wrongdoer. Watch this. Now watch it. This is very important. You yourselves are wrongdoers. And then in verse 9, do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So you have the noun used in verse 9. Verse 8, he shifts that meaning of adikeo to wrongdoers, not positionally, but experientially. So you see in verse 8, the concept goes from, goes to the experiential realm. No, you yourselves are committing experiential wrong. Do you not know that those who commit experiential wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? It fits the context. Furthermore, there's a grammatical point that is brought out, and Joseph Dillow in his book, Reign of the Servant Kings, makes it very clear. He says the phrase in verse 9 is not the same as the wicked. I think New, uh, King James translated unrighteous in verse 1 is the wicked, but that's what he's talking about is that phrase uh, being, being judged by the unrighteous back in verse 1. The phrase in verse 9 is not the same as the unrighteous in verse 1. In verse 1, the noun has the article with it. And it's definite, referring to a class of people. But in verse 9, it's without the article. The articular construction emphasizes identity. That's back in verse 1. Identity. The anarthrous construction, that is, without the article, emphasizes character. That's down in verse 9. Because the same word is used twice, once with the article in verse 1 and once without it in verse 9, it may be justifiable to press for this standard grammatical distinction here. If so, then the adikas of verse 9 are not the wicked of verse 1. They are not of that definite class of people who are non-Christians. Rather, as to their behavior traits, that's character, they're behaving in an unrighteous manner or character. In other words, the use of the wicked in verse 1 signifies being, but the use of the wicked in verse 9 signifies not being, but doing, and that was their problem. In a nutshell, what we're saying is that the presence of the article indicates a classification of people, the unbeliever. The absence of the article is going to bring it down to character quality. And so there's a shift that takes place between these two verses. And so when you come down to verse 9, we're not talking about position anymore. We're not talking about their general categorization. We're talking about their behavior. And so it's experiential 
righteousness. Now, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous, that is, the wrongdoers, let's correctly translate that, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Question. You think we ought to have a jail ministry or prison ministry where you have evangelists go down to the jail and witness and present the gospel to criminals that are in jail? Well, if this verse means that if you commit these crimes, if you're, a, if you're covetous or you're a thief or you commit murders in other passages, you commit these crimes and you won't enter the kingdom of God, why have a jail ministry? They can't get into heaven at all. See, that's, that's absurd. What this passage is, is saying is that believers who continue, believers who continue in carnality, and that's what this is talking about, you have the same kind of list describing the works of the flesh in Ephesians 5, living in carnality are not going to be logging any time walking by the Spirit. Therefore, they're not going to have any divine good at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, verse 11 makes it a little more clear. Such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. Now, what's important to note here, what's important to note here is that verse 11 says, some of you. Now, that's a plural. Some of y'all. But y'all were washed. Y'all were sanctified. Y'all were justified. See, there's a plural all the way through there. Now, if we were to chart this out, it would look like this. Now, it would if I had a, there it is, had a pen. This circle represents the congregation, the congregation of Corinth. And they are all believers. They were all believers. Now, there's a, there's a subset to this overall group, and that's the sum. Some were. Some were homosexuals and thieves and liars and all those other sins. All of them, all of them were justified. All of them were sanctified. All of them were saved. But some of them were in this category. That means that only some of them are no longer to be classified that way. You understand what he's saying here? All of them are washed, sanctified, and justified. But some who used to be thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers are no longer. But the rest of them still are. Remember, these are the carnal Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3. All of them, only, only this one segment, this small segment, have experienced any experiential sanctification. The rest of them are fractious, jealous, carnal, arrogant, operating on human viewpoint, licentious, uh, uh, tolerant of sexual immorality in the congregation, uh, defining spiritual gift, gifts in terms of the pagan mystery religions. See, 
the vast majority of them are still operating on the sin nature. And that's what Paul's getting at here. And we see the same emphasis in some other passages that we run into. There's a distinction in inheritance. Titus 3.7 says, Having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is what all believers have as heirs of God. We all have eternal life. Galatians 4.7 reiterates that. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. See, all believers are heirs of God. All believers have eternal life. All believers will get a resurrection body. All believers will have no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. All things are passed away. But there's distinctions. Uh, Galatians 3.18 again says, If the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So there's an inheritance for every believer. However, you have distinctions. Ephesians 5.5 For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now that isn't saying that if you continue to commit these sins after you're saved, that, well, you've blown it, it's too late. Remember, there's 1 John 1, 1.9, there's cleansing, there's growth, there's sanctification. Sure, Christians are continuing, going to continue to commit some of these sins post-salvation, but if we're cleansed, that deals with it. We're back in fellowship and we move forward and we walk by the Spirit. And while we're walking by the Spirit, uh, there's divine good produced and that's what's rewardable and there's forward momentum. We may still commit any number of these sins, but there's instant forgiveness and we move forward. Colossians 3.23 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. See, this is a reward. It's not a gift. The gift is salvation. But if you continue to grow and operate and apply in the spiritual life, then what you get is in this additional inheritance. Colossians 3.25, But he who does wrong, notice it's that verb again, adikeo, will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Again, there's a distinction. There are consequences. Even as a believer, there's consequences for failure in the Christian life. And if there's ongoing failure and no confession of sin, then we will not be inheriting the kingdom. Galatians 5.16 I say then, walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then in verse 19, he gives a list of the lust of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice, proso, who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're told that we'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ and receive a reward for the things that we process, the things that we practice. So if you're walking in fellowship, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be carrying out these works, therefore you'll be producing divine good. If you're walking according to the flesh, you'll be producing sin. It's paid for, but what else? It's paid for. You're not being penalized for the sin. You're you're You'll, you're suffering consequences and loss of inheritance because you're not producing divine good. 
So once again, we're back to that crucial principle. We have to live today in light of eternity. Grace doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for failure in the Christian life. Grace means that salvation is a free gift. It's given to us at salvation. You can continue to sin and just say to heck with the Christian life, I'm saved, I'm just glad I'm going to get into heaven. But there are consequences. For the believer who stays in fellowship, uses 1 John 1, 9, you're still going to sin. Trust me, you have a sin nature, and you're going to shock yourself and shock others with some of the sins you commit as you grow and you advance in the spiritual life. You may even reverse your spiritual growth for a while and get into all kinds of other sins. But 1 John 1, 9 provides cleansing so that there's full recovery and advance. And at the judgment seat of Christ, as Abraham says back in Genesis chapter uh, 17, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. He will perfectly evaluate and distinguish between our human good and the divine good produced by walking by the Spirit. And where there's the divine good, there will be rewards, and this is what leads to an inheritance and a possession and responsibility in the kingdom. But we have to be prepared for it. And the warning that we get from these passages is that if you treat grace lightly, and there's no advance, no capacity in the spiritual life, no maturity, then there's no preparation for the millennial kingdom and the eternal state, and there will be a forfeiture of inheritance. And those who are not overcomers will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ, and those rewards that are lost will be burned up in the lake of fire. But the believer enters into heaven, yet is through fire, and has eternal life. But without those rewards that were his potentially if he had just gone forward in the Christian life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by these things, to understand your grace in such a tremendous way that you've provided everything for us. You've paid for every single sin on the cross so that sin is no longer an issue for salvation. However, we are also warned that if we continue out of fellowship without using 1 John 1.9, without recovery, then there are tremendous consequences both in time in terms of divine discipline and in the millennial kingdom and eternity in terms of loss of rewards, privileges, and position. Father, we pray that you would challenge anyone here who's not a believer with the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. If you're here this evening and you are unsure of your salvation or uncertain of your eternal destiny, your salvation is secured by Jesus Christ on the cross. And all you need to do is to believe in him, to trust in him, and you will have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.